Welcome to this week's episode of Unfortunately Required Reading. This week, we have a guest. We do have a guest. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Baron Von Cheeseplate, also a human named Jason, who has been a friend of mine for uh, more years than I think either of us care to admit. Something like that. Yes. Uh, Jason here is a uh, beneficiary of the pod, helps us, benefactor, uh, helps us keep the metaphorical and physical lights on and um, has decided to grace us with his presence by doing the incredibly controversial yet brave thing, which was ask to be on the show. <laughs> I just wanted to contribute a book, and y'all were like, well, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, uh, I get to hang out with Amanda and Victoria, which I feel like I know by proxy through Amanda. <laughs> I love how casual you've made this narrative, which doesn't include the 50 text Facebook messages of I'd like to be on the show. <laughs> Well, I do love I do love how casual and relaxed you've made this narrative, and I appreciate it. I mean, I try to be casual and relaxed in all things in life, but then again, I think that's just probably uh, the high functioning anxiety. Uh, yeah, let's okay. just go with that Yay, one. He's our team. <laughs> yeah, why do you think we're friends? <laughs> and have been for so long. <laughs> it have been for I mean, we're 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 over a decade, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. easily. Don't don't say easily. Don't say. Is this going to be one of those things where we get jackets? We're like the high-functioning anxiety squad. I love go, that personally. Go around trolling the sharks. Yeah, kickball. We're anxious. No, we're <laughs> anxious and queer. We're not fighting anyone. All right. Yeah. So just a little well, bit of housekeeping at the start of this. We are recording on a platform that doesn't like more than three people at a time. So if we shut down, we will come right back. Fuck Yay. you, Zoom. Sorry. Was I not supposed to say that? I don't know. All um, right. Okay. So we have a guest. We did the introduction. What are we collectively eating slash drinking? Guests first. Uh, I am having some wonderful Texas honey cider and a lot of sadness. Uh, Austin E-Cider is not yet a sponsor, but if you'd like to, uh, please let us know. Uh, I am next in order. I am drinking Hendrix Orbium Gin with a ginger ale Canada Dry, the only ginger ale that exists, even though they are consistently sued for not having enough ginger in their ginger ale. Interesting, I didn't know that. Like, like they've been sued like two or three times for not having adequate ginger in their ginger ale. So I probably have more ginger in the weird water mixture I've made in the fridge? Okay. Accurate. Also, I have this weird like adult lunchable, which we would call a charcuterie board. Oh. You actually did the full assignment. I just, okay, so listeners of the pod, and both of you know, I take antidepressants, which means that I can't drink the way I used to, which you've probably heard based on some of the tipsy pods we've had. I can mitigate that if I eat. So unless you want incoherent Lesh Amanda, which though is very fun, does not get the assignment done. So we're not going back to our Beowulf days. We never can. (laughs) I would just be on the floor. My husband still makes fun of me for that. Like, he's playing Valhalla right now, the Assassin's Creed game. And he's oh, like, it was like just a song in the background? He goes, there's a whole Beowulf quest, babe. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, there's an entire vat of mead. I'm like, which Amanda and I have consumed? Like, yeah, which we've... <laughs> you have drinking competitions in that game. It's super fun. Oh, shit. You can have a dick measuring contest in a video game? Excellent. There's evidently, like, a rap battle between a talking squirrel, too. There's do. that... You, you you get to play Thor for a little... Uh, no, you get to play Odin for a little while and you have an epic rap battle with Thor. <laughs> Evidently, this was a real Viking thing. Like, they had, like, poetry offs, kind of. I mean, I know about the Blue Men of the Sea that you have to win a rap battle against, otherwise they'll drown you. Yeah, it's... it's instead of fighting, it's called flighting. Cool. I like a... The Mary Lude, where you basically in Wales have that back and forth until finally they beat you so they can come in and drink all your alcohol. Oh, the skeleton horse? Skeleton horse. It's like my favorite thing. Other One than of my like- friends messaged me a picture of that and they were like, please tell me they don't labor under the delusion that this is Christian. It's like, no, everyone knows oh, this no. is pagan. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Everyone knows this is pagan. It's like, please tell me they don't labor under the delusion that this is Christian. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, no. no one does. The only people who do that is us out here. We're like, oh, this is totally fine. This isn't pagan at all. And we're like, I'm pretty sure that it's a Jesus fucking didn't skeleton have horse. Okay. 
I don't think that was in any of the translations of the Bible that I've read, even the ones that include books that aren't real or biblically accurate angels. <laughs> All the eyes. So many fucking eyes. We're gonna have to add that to the um, bingo board now. Every time we reference I'm so biblically accurate angels, squidged out by by uh, biblically accurate angels. Well, it also, you, it also it ma- also matters what tier of angel you're talking about. It does. Some of them are just like feet and energy. Was everyone on crack cocaine? Because like watchers aren't technically angels, but they're the ones with all the eyes. Yes, we don't have time for this. But <laughs> so now you know, now you know why. A now, now you know why Amanda and I have been friends for so long. We could literally just like interject a side comment and go off on a tangent. And oh, then yes. randomly end up back at the topic <laughs> three hours later and go, that was a great discussion, but let's talk about the topic at hand. Yeah, that was a, well, I mean, that worked great when we were both moderators on a website. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we are reading because we actually haven't mentioned what book we're reading. We've just been fucking hanging out. <laughs> we're reading A Wrinkle in Time, a book that Jason cares about a lot, a book that I think Tori cares about a lot. I do. And a book that I wish would be carried away by pigeons. So this this is like every book that that we discuss. Where I'm like, I like the amazing. parable of the sower. You did, and I was like, I don't want to be in Los Angeles when it collapses. Yeah, I I would be completely fine if this book got carried away by birds. Hell, we're in Texas right now with what it was at nine hundred and thirty seven cases of COVID that were announced yesterday, and I had a small panic attack. On well, the we're couch, in San so. Antonio. I think did we finally lap Houston as the worst city? Um, I don't know if it was just one day of cases. It was just one day of cases. Yeah. Are we still best city in Texas for, I mean, we're all bad, but like. I don't know. I'm not. I think El Paso, I think El Paso is still the worst. Yeah! I mean, no, but like. (laughs) I mean, Texas dick measuring contest. El El Paso is having to send people to like Lubbock and Austin and Dallas-Fort Worth and Santa Fe because they can't handle the volume of cases. Well, now I'm sad for the dick measuring contest. Okay, uh, so we're covering A Wrinkle in Time, which was written by what I can only imagine to be an old stuffy woman uh, who had a bad childhood. No, she's actually pretty cool. Sure, continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of rivals Octavia Butler in awards. I was actually really impressed, but we'll go into Oh, yeah. Well, the time quintet alone just gave her so much stuff, but... Yeah. It also depends on the level of complexity that you talk about with Octavia Butler being here in terms of technical competency and coolness and Madeline. And empathy. Well, yeah, all the empathy. But we'll get into that. So we're going to do the short story long. Um, This book, reading it as an adult, hits very differently when then you're power reading it in fourth grade in the car. Um, Car! Yeah, back before I could, when I could actually read in a car, which was my favorite thing. Anyway, Meg Murray is a high school girl at 15. She's not particularly beautiful. She's super awkward and very insecure, thus starting our YA books for all of eternity. Her father has been missing for over a year. Meg usually has to watch after her brother, Charles Wallace, who is very smart, but doesn't really talk, so people think he's an idiot. On a dark and stormy night, Mrs. Whatsit comes to the Murray home. She looks like an eccentric homeless lady and is very odd. It turns out she's actually a celestial being that can read thoughts. She freaks out Meg's mom by telling her about a tesseract, which is described as a wrinkle in time and space. The next day, Meg and Charles Wallace go to Mrs. Watson's cabin, and on the way, they run into the cute popular boy in Meg's class, Calvin O'Keefe. Charles Wallace talks to him, the three, and takes to him as well. The three kids learn that Mrs. Watson and her two friends, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch, are trying to protect the universe from something evil called the Dark Thing. Evidently, the dark thing is like the glow cloud from Welcome to Night Vale, and it engulfs the stars around it. All hail the glow cloud. Several planets have already been pulled into it, including one called Kamatsots, where Mrs. Murray has been, or Mr. Murray has been in prison. Mrs. Murray's still at home doing science experiments. (laughs) They go visit the happy medium who presents as female and not Zach Galifianakis in the book, which shows them that their own planet is also surrounded by the dark stuff. The group is transported to Kamatsots, and the three celestial W's tell them to stay together the whole time while looking for Mr. Murray. The weird thing is everything on Kamatsas looks exactly alike, so copies of copies under a giant disembodied brain known as it, suck it Pennywise. 
Charles Wallace tries to use his intelligence to overpower the it robot thing, but ends up falling under its control. They find Meg's dad and break him out, and he, Meg, and Calvin try to confront it, but are, are unable to withstand it. They escape the last minute and travel through a tesseract to the planet, which I'm going to try to pronounce as Itchel. Itchel is gray and inhabited by tall furry beasts who care for travelers that come to their land, and they're super fluffy. Anyway, um, Charles Wallace is still stuck with it. The three W's show up and Meg figures out pretty quickly she's going to have to go to Kamatsad's by herself to get her brother. Mrs. Witch tells Meg that she has the only weapon, but she'll have to figure out that weapon by herself. Surprise! It's the ability to love. Meg gets Charles Wallace away and teases him through time, or tessers him through time and lands in her garden at home where Calvin and Mr. Murray are waiting. Aww, warm fuzzies, and then there's a bunch more books. The end. Uh, Amanda, are you gonna be okay? No, I don't like this book. <laughs> it's Harry Potter with less magic and shoddy science. I was having like all kinds of Harry Potter dreams this morning. It was weird. You know what? Real talk. I had a dream in which my former best friend and I were still talking for some reason, and in that dream, he called me fat, and I woke up angry. And I've never really had that. Like, I didn't, like, have that, like, with significant others or anything. But I fully woke up, like, mad at someone who, you know, I haven't even spoken to. That's, yeah. Yeah, no, that's... I've had <laughs> dreams where I've had full conversations with people, but I never remember them after the fact. But I have woken up angry before, and I don't know why. My favorite is when you have a full-on dream where somebody did something shady and then you're like mad at them and you're right. having to go, okay, they didn't actually do the thing. But what if they did the thing behind my back? They didn't do the thing. So we have uh, some themes and some symbols. We probably have inevitably missed one or two, likely in my anger. Um, I've got to spend some time talking about childhood power fantasies. That's essentially what this is, is that this is like many young adult novels a childhood power fantasy because here's the thing about being a child is that it sucks <laughs> you may Even, have no bills you may have no not not be necessarily involved in things like the news but at the same time you have very limited power i watched the news as a kid I did which too. which, which, which explains the anxiety right like, I'm sure that surprises no one. Like, I watched a lot of the news when I was a kid. Like, I was that kid, like, in a robe with, like, a mug of milk, like, watching the news. So you were Baby Yoda? Pretty much. Yeah, see, I was I was the kid who, and this is going to age me, I was the one staying up to watch uh, both the uh, Bush-Dukakis uh, debates, or, sorry, no, Bush, uh, so old bush and then bush clinton debates so yeah <laughs> News. You, look, you look like a tiny baby angel like you don't look like you're old enough for that oh he's, he's very much old enough for that you are doing well sir born, born in the mid 80s hooray reaganism all that great stuff right which right? is why i regularly hit you with a broom <laughs> um but here's the thing about childhood power fantasies is that they can be comforting when you're a kid, but when you're an adult and you've processed all of your trauma through either like sexual daddy issues or therapy or both, um, you start to learn something. And that's, these are really toxic narratives. These are inherently such toxic narratives. Like think about Harry Potter. We shouldn't be trusting children to save the world. I was not a dumb kid. Please do not trust me at like 13 to save the world. There's I would have this, let the motherfucker burn. There's this amazing <laughs> book that just came out by Naomi Novik about um, basically something very similar to like the Harry Potter world, except everybody's kind of stuck in this school for four years. And a lot of people die on a regular basis if they don't understand like their magic skills and stuff. And right. the whole thing at the end, when they graduate, they go into this whole room of monsters because when the school started, it broke down and they couldn't like keep monsters out anymore. So basically, you either survive and are full of trauma for the rest of eternity, or you die. Like, that's and I'm just, like, that's such that's an inherently cool. toxic idea. Well, I don't basic, like it. It's basically the Harry Potter form of uh, Attack on Titan, literally. Yeah. 
Like yeah. this yeah, college but is with the only thing. Well, except the one main character also wants to kill the popular guy. So it's also a little <laughs> Yeah. Accurate. It's super, super good. And it's it's very clear about we should not be in this situation. This is stupid. What is wrong with people? Right. And I, I think that not enough of these books have that critique. Because I think that's what's bothering me, is that like we're not questioning why we're trusting children to save the world. And I think that I don't know. I think it's also to a very shitty uh, rationalization for trauma. Well, like, we also see a lot of this too in narratives of having children donate money, donating their entire piggy bank. That's actually a tactic, which we're probably going to get attacked now by Scientology, where they yes. basically encourage their members, hey, have your kid donate this $50 that they've saved 10 years for and go ahead and have them donate that to the, the ideal org or whatever. And right. we do see a lot of that of, oh, it's so sweet that this kid took his allowance and paid for his friend's medical surgery. And you're sitting there going, that shouldn't be how this works. Like we should not be putting so much pressure on a 15 year old and her what, like five year old brother? By right. the way, you have to save the world. We're gonna give you this popular guy who also seems to be a really good guy. Like, right. good luck oh, here's some angels and a creature that's going to try to kill you and give you a sand breakfast. Like, Also, Tori, in that sentence, you said medical surgery, and I'm trying to figure out what other kind of surgeries you can have. Okay, so if we want to get really weird, I just watched Killing Eve, and there was like a whole sexual surgery thing. Okay, never... Germany's a weird place. We're going to leave it at that. Um, Established. Killing Eve's amazing. It's basically just Hannibal for bisexuals. So, moving so Hannibal. on. But with women. There you go. <laughs> Hannibal for bisexuals there's, is Hannibal. There's, there's no eating of people. There's, oh. there's no eating. So. But I miss the inherent eroticism of Mads Mikkelsen eating air quotes people. Air quotes people. He's such a hot man. He's not listening to this podcast. Um, I hope not. I don't want to have to defend that. I mean, he reads a lot of erotic uh, Hannah Graham fan fiction. Like, he has said that. So, yeah, so, Mads is just chilling. So Mads Nicholson and Gary Oldman walk into a bar. Oh fuck, we're fighting. <laughs> oh fuck, we're fighting. Oh, okay. Fear utilitarianism slash religious suppression and conformity. I, as a Catholic, have nothing to say about this. <laughs> well, I mean the the thing about the book that always struck me, especially with both these topics kind of interjoined, and what um, Madeline Ellen uh, I always forget how to pronounce her name because the apostrophe always throws me off it's Ellingol or Lingol Lingol at Lingle. least from the videos but yeah um, but basically in some of her like post text especially when you get into like Mini Waters and some of the later quintet she was very much trying to write religious science fiction which is a thing. I mean, it's very much uh, a topic. Uh, well, I mean, like y'all talked about last week and love the pod last week, by the way. But one of the things that I think is very, very important is to recognize that a lot of the important scientific members of the community have come from either a religious background or were part of the church for many years. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this goes back multiple hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you saw with it, especially with the fear of like Catholicism or the Pope and dictating that certain things had to be certain ways or utilitarianism of like everything should be exactly the same because how else could you suppress the masses? I mean, you mm -hmm. start getting into these sorts of mentalities. And, you know, one of the things that she did say, because she wrote this in the late 60s and everybody was like, this is an anti-communism book. Isn't it great? Like, we should give this to our kids because it's anti-communism. And she's like, hold up. Like, this is not about communism. This is literally about, like, people trying to tell you exactly what to do. And they're like, that's communism. She's like, that's also capitalism. <laughs> well, and also she had a, a religious belief that she got in a lot of trouble for where she believed that everybody would have a universal saving. So basically, um, God wasn't a dick and that... <laughs> If you, you know, eventually you would come around and understand that this was a loving God who was basically trying to teach you certain lessons through life. 
And there were actually, and I put this in some notes later down, where she actually got into a lot of trouble where, with uh, Christian bookstores and Christian societies and libraries who were banning her books because they're like, this is a dangerous belief. And she's even saying like in this book, she's like, it's not necessarily a great idea to lose all of your ability to make decisions and follow exactly what everyone else is doing because you are here for a particular purpose. That's why you have your faults and that's why Meg's gift of her faults is a big deal. Well, and, and same thing with not just the gift of her faults, but when they're seeing the happy medium and Charles Wallace and Calvin O'Keefe start lifting off people. The, the one the one group they didn't include, which, you know, hindsight being what it is, was, you know, Arabic side, but you had people from a wide diverse range. I mean, they they start off, of course, with Jesus and some of the other ones, but, you know, they list musicians, authors, uh, scientists, you know, all sorts of uh, Gandhi. I mean, just all sorts of great people that through time we have agreed are really great people. They did a lot of good things. And I think the idea in her mind is sort of that, and it goes back to, I think, a Simpsons episode where Homer's walking with God and he's like, who got it right? And God's just like, uh, this group. <laughs> and like, So oh, okay. how nice that this was written during a time when we agreed that Gandhi was a good person. Have unlimited minutes. Thank you, Capricious Zoom gods. <laughs> Wait, we have unlimited minutes? That's yeah, what the thing said. It just literally, we got a flash up that said, you now have unlimited minutes. Thank you, Aww. Capricious gods of Zoom. I take back the fuck you from earlier. Um, thank you, Zoom gods. Thank you, Zoom gods. I doubt that they're listening, but watch, there's that one person that monitors. It might be my, so my friend and I joke that I have an FBI agent that follows mm -hmm. me and her online. And his name is Fox, like Fox Mulder. I think we've Thank talked about Fox. this on the before. So Fox is probably like, hey guys, you're gonna get some bad press. Maybe just like extend the time. Thanks. Okay, if if we are the bad press for Zoom, one, <laughs> that's ignoring a lot of other shit. And two, I'm now terrified of the, of the strength and power of our audience. <laughs> I think we um, all have, have have FBI agents, and we probably have very similar ones, Tori, because uh, we're both Lutheran, we're both high anxiety, we're both Sagittarius, so we're probably Googling a lot of the same stuff. Oh, and aside, I was watching Deadly Women, uh, at, because, <laughs> hey, 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 you're just talking shit, um, and there was this woman who married a man, and she has a gambling problem, because of course she does, and, like, she gets her, she loses all the money, because she has a gambling problem. And she finds out about her husband's life insurance policy and then proceeds to Google how to kill your spouse. <laughs> At least use the library computer. <laughs> Just, I mean, I've had to Google some weird shit because of writing. <laughs> Just <laughs> how to kill spouse. I just. I love it. There was this uh, author, I was, I forget who it was, but I was watching them talk at like something back when we could have people around each other. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how his wife came downstairs one night and he was pouring entire two liters of soda into the sink to see how many liters it w of blood it would be able to hold. And his wife just goes, okay, honey, have a good night. And like walks oh. back upstairs because evidently this was like normal for his no. research. No, no, no. So I was talking to my husband, and I'm like pouring stuff down the sink, and I'm like, so let me tell you the story so you don't think I'm weird. No, 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 no. Um, so I also think we need to backpedal a little bit when it comes to utilitarianism, but utilitarianism in and of itself as a philosophical theory is not inherently negative. It is seen as negative by Westerners because we're selfish assholes. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of fair, yeah. Like, utilitarianism is just striving for the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which apparently Americans can't manage because masks are a political statement now. Which doesn't make any sense. It's like, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It but doesn't. I, think to, I, I think it goes back to, again, another book, which is why I wanted to talk about this book because of the parallels, The Giver. Like, you start <laughs> looking at uh, Kamazataz and the giver and it's like you see what they're trying to achieve but yet they put this idea of that choice inherently should be good and should be valued but not every choice is great or 
I mean, it's the whole double negative pair or the, the trolley problem, you know? Yeah. Do you sacrifice the one, i.e., you know, the kid that's bouncing the ball badly and runs out into the street and is happy, but everybody else freaks out because, you know, ooh, spooky, not like the rest of everybody else and has to go get re-educated. But again, like even inherently the trolley problem is not meant to be that ethically taxing. Your goal as a utilitarianist should be save the mass number of people, eat that one kid. Why is he on the tracks anyways? Have you guys seen that meme of the, there is nobody in danger, do you jump in front of the trolley? (laughs) Yes. Yes, in mood. Um, But utilitarianism is not meant to be this great negative. It's a negative to Americans because of capitalism. Welcome to Amanda Soviet Porter. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should send you uh, um, Anushanka. I would I'd put it right there. <laughs> Underneath the happy trail of this fictional character. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's bad to us because we like individual choice. We love this American exceptionalism that we can't think of others. Hence why masks are a political issue. Oh my God, have you seen all of the women, and it's like specifically women, who are using a pro-choice rhetoric to not wear masks? It's like, you guys say my body, my choice. This is my choice. I ain't wearing a mask. (laughs) Okay, get an infectious lung disease. Like, I don't... Right, pop off, I guess. (laughs) Pop off, Belinda. Knock yourself out. Um, Well, like, even my language program that I messed with added an entire thing about the pandemic oh, so now no. I know how to say a lot of words about the pandemic in Russian that's very sad but um I also think that the fear of utilitarianism probably goes back to when this is written this is peak cold war times where we're concerned about the Russians and the Vietnamese and the Chinese and we don't want communism because we have to sell coca-cola to penguins well more more of the South Americans but yeah that works we have to sell cocaine to penguins in South America. Yes, there we go. Okay. <laughs> so, side topic. Um, in college, my teacher in my Spanish class made us do presentations in full Spanish. So I did one about Pablo Escobar, and I got to explain what a Colombian necktie was in Spanish, <laughs> um, as well as the fact that Colombia did not have good cocaine. Bolivia had better cocaine, and that's why it was imported. Um, my teacher was not very happy, but I got a B, so... Well, historically accurate, so yay. Yeah, I, I see no issue with this. I had to explain uh, Salvador Dali's sexism in Spanish when I was younger. I, I had to explain to coworkers what China White Chicken was. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because we, we have, in Houston, there's a restaurant that literally, like, has been, like, raided, like, four times by the DEA. Yeah. Because in the back they distribute cocaine and i was like fred's fish fry for us tori (laughs) fred's fish fry we we drove by fred's fish fry the first like the first when i was starting to date my husband and i'm like so is this like a front for something because i don't actually see anybody at any of these restaurants no matter which one you go to there is never anyone there just drugs just i can only imagine it's like willy wonka and, like, you punch a hole in the wall, and it's just, like, cocaine. Not even, like, sealed cocaine. It's just, like, fucking, you just put, like, a powdery fist. It's just cocaine. <laughs> is that why the snozberries taste like snozberries? That is 100% why. Um, on the next topic, which is evil, um, I personally have issue with the way this book approaches it, but I have issues with everything. So, <laughs> I, just don't, I never like idea that good and evil is a black and white issue well yeah because yeah because again the author is intending this to be a very binary no gray area sort of choice although she describes earth as being in a gray pall because it hasn't exactly gone the way of the black thing but it hasn't also absorbed all the goodness because you know the star that is soul hasn't given itself up for us Sure, and I also hate the inherent racism in Good and Evil, because as we mentioned, the negative is the black thing, which I have a name, it's called Amanda. Do not refer to me as the black thing. I said, I sent that in a message once. Notes. (laughs) I'm just kidding. 
I said that once to you, Tori. Yes. <laughs> and you and I was so like, hurt. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. My it favorite was, was so- like when my cat, my cat who's now deceased, rest his soul, was a black yes. cat and he used to get outside all the time. And I'd be like, I'll let him in in a little bit. You're like, oh, I see how it is. I see how it is. Also, I mean, I loved your cat, but did he have a soul? Um, I don't know. He still hangs out. So, um, yeah, fun story. Uh, my my uh, cat hangs out still, even though he's he's gone. He's cremated. This is like a ghost thing. And he plays with one of the other cats, which freaks no. him out every time, which no. is amazing because you'll just see my cat stare into the corner and his tail goes. No. And like, Binks is hanging out. No, no, no. So Amanda's not coming to my house anymore, evidently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, yeah, we need more Morrison when it comes to looking at good and evil as uh, a non-binary issue because it's really, again, like, that's the thing with theory is that a lot of this stuff isn't inherently bad. We just make it bad because we put bias into it. Well, and I think, too, when you look at this book and the way it's written, especially, and I forgot as, because the reason why I love this book when I was younger was because I was very much the, the Meg Murray. I was the awkward, shy, just, you know, I was either a little bit of uh, Charles Wallace or a little bit of Meg Murray, depending mm-hmm. on what spectrum you talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that this book tries to do is say, it's okay to be awkward and intelligent because like you have the power to choose and the power to choose good versus evil, you know, and be, be the Sherlock, not the Moriarty, but it's written in such a way that is, again, meant for children, which I, you know, she had her target audience. She knew who she was I'm writing. being the Moriarty. There, there's nothing wrong with being the Moriarty. That's the Moriarty. What's wrong with that? <laughs> As a Moriarty apologist, uh, you know, it's all right to be the Moriarty, but when you're writing for kids of this age group, which again, everybody has different experiences, but the whole idea was we need to show them some sort of reason why choice is good and it's okay to have both scientific theory and a little bit of religion to make you a better human. Children's propaganda. Again, it it very much (laughs) propaganda, but propaganda in a way that honestly, and this is just my two cents, is written poorly because it literally goes plot, 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 falling action and the falling action is about what four pages of the book I mean, that's, that's as generous. a kid i remember reading this in the car and then not remembering the ending and being like why don't i remember the ending there was like so much detail and then all of a sudden it was just done and like having to i mean i've read this multiple times as an adult and still every time i have to go back and be like okay so they land in the garden was there something else I was supposed to remember? Like, was there a uh, magical uh, ending under the ending? Yeah, no, love saves all of the end. Ugh. Also, don't forget the Cthulhu beasts save Meg. They get rid of her anger. Yay. Because anger is an unattractive thing in women and something that they shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, do we want to discuss that as a side tangent theme that I don't think we have in the list? We not have it in the list. The, uh, the you can throw it under feminism because I have some thoughts. <laughs> um, okay. I, I came across a um, Eva DuVernay quote, and I apologize for butchering that name. Um, her, she was reading this, and this was actually the beginning of the audiobook I was listening to. It is This is not a kid's book. This book has no limits. Um, I mean, I think that's giving a lot of credit to the book because I think this book has a lot of limits. Well, she did also direct the uh, second Disney version, which was not nearly as bad. First one was, oh my God. God. You guys disagree on this, I think. No, the the first uh, when I said the bad Disney movie, I meant the first one, the made for TV movie. Oh, okay. I was I was ready for a fight. No, no. The second movie is not great because it's basically it's got the Tomorrowland problem, which mm. is it's it's got some great nuggets, but overall it's a lot of flash in the pan. But I mean, when you're writing, when you're writing a screenplay for a book is that is literally a one, a one steak sauce meant for meant for children, and B doesn't have a whole lot of deep plot other than tesseracts. Like any of the other quintet, ha- I mean, if you look at the other quintet books, they're about three to four times longer than a wrinkle. 
because she wrote more comprehensive novels by that point. I think there was potential to make the movie better. I think honestly, it just felt like Ava DuVernay like just called a bunch of her friends and said, you want to make a movie? <laughs> and I didn't hate it. I liked it. Um, it was something cute to watch that I knew the end was going to be happy. And so that was something I put on in the background with my little fleece blanket when it's going to be okay. I don't know what the camera stuff was with it, but everything just looked so artificial in a way that was like distracting. Because and I know it's, the, like, hmm? it's the Tomorrowland problem. I mean, if yeah. you go back and watch Tomorrowland, like it's literally, it, it's, it's got the Brad Bird problem or Disney problem of like trying to do live action is we want to make a lot of stuff that basically attracts the kids' eyes because, you know, showy effects, whatever, you know. You but then it just looks like glitter vomit. Exactly. And, <laughs> and but the book itself ha suffers from the same exact problems. It is not plot dense. It is literally, oh. we, ha we have, we have the, the, the triumvirate of saviors. Again, three was not an arbitrary number that, Madeline picked that's very obvious the youngest being five years old Meg being 13 Calvin being 15 like why are kids saving the universe this makes no sense especially when two of them well one of them is literally five and a super empath like why <laughs> isn't as someone who uh, listens to the pod and knows me as a human person you know I hate it when uh, writers think they're being clever Fuck you, Madeline. <laughs> I see she's, you. She's very dead, ma'am. Fuck you in heaven. I don't care. I've never heard anyone say F you in heaven before. Well, considering that that's where it's literally zero fucks happen, I'm sure. But no, I think she's probably at, at the, uh, the library in Bern, but that goes into another book that's really good. Uh, if I don't care where she is. Fuck her. Uh, if you've read the Imaginarium Geographia, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, she is super dead. Okay, so fun fact, I just Googled uh, the author. I got a really, really cool article that said the creepy authoritarianism of <laughs> Madeline Gale. And I'm like, there we go, someone agrees with me. Uh, so, I think we need to talk about freedom of thought and expression and emotion. Just because, again, this book is very much just American exceptionalism, but make it child saviors. Am I wrong? I no, I no, no, like Bulgarians now, where you just kind of do the halfway. No, no, no lie detected. I, it's just okay. So we're so I am pretty proudly non-authoritarian. I can say that, but. As I continue to exist on the internet, and this might be controversial, I think some people <laughs> don't need to express thoughts that they do. Now, not in a way that is violent or harmful, but I think we can universally agree that um, if you want to say some white supremacist stuff on Twitter, that's not an opinion. You need to be quiet. <laughs> Um, so this idea of like protecting thought and emotion, sometimes you have bad thoughts. Like I watch a lot of killer kids, which is again, should be no surprise to anyone. Is Jason and I are just both sitting here laughing going, yeah, pretty much. Both of you. <laughs> you Some thoughts us. don't need to be had because if that's the case, then all of these children deserve to have murdered their families. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because we have this whole thing um, with with Meg where it's like, you're sad, you're awkward, everything is hard, but guess what? Those are superpowers. I'm but not. sorry, but me being the sad, depressed 15-year-old who sat in a library for pretty much every lunch, not yeah. necessarily a superpower. I learned a lot about witchcraft <laughs> um, like, and the like mouth being... of but... I learned a lot about nuclear engineering and how to do other things. So we'll just, you know, leave that to subject alone. But I learned I think, a lot about Roman sex parties and historical serial killers. Again, no lies detected amongst any of us. <laughs> it's just, but like, yeah, uh, there is no superpower in being weird. 
There was no glory in me losing my dad at 12 and then not being able to relate to other people. Like, I think we talked about this last pod or a pod before, or just sometime. Like, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Fuck you. I would rather have both parents. <laughs> well, and, and, and that goes back to the early part of the book where literally everybody's telling Meg, like, you would be so much nicer if you smiled more, basically. Oh. Is, uh, and, oh. Uh, yeah, and it's like, I, I would do exactly what Meg did and just literally, like, either punch them in the face with either words or my fist. <laughs> Yeah, like you punch them in the neck. Oh my god, I've been told that too many times. I just <sighs> okay. Um, but yeah, not all emotions need to be felt. Not every feeling is valid. Uh, as RuPaul said, uh, facts aren't feelings. Um, so I like your your plot point here of revenge narrative for a sad childhood. That's all I can imagine. This is. I mean, I know and she. It's fairly yes. accurate. Uh, I know. She was an incredibly shy child who spent most of her time reading and in the library. Right. Uh, which I feel like we can all relate to on this podcast. Yes. You know? <laughs> Team high-functioning anxiety. Yay! We are, getting ja- we are getting jackets, right? It's going to be in the Fuck yes. store. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll design it. I'll design it. Yes. Yeah, it, just, it feels like such... It feels like such like revenge porn for a sad childhood. And don't get me wrong, I've written my fair share of power fantasy stuff. I've been writing fan fiction since I was 12. I can go into the archives and find my revenge fantasy stuff. But like, I think I'm I've not read gonna... half of it. <laughs> You've read maybe a, a fraction of it. I'm going to say like a fourth. Because okay. a lot I'll... of it's still written on like paper and is in notebooks. Oh, right. I forgot you kept... You, you have a lot more physical copies than you have digital copies. Of I have things. so many physical copies because, uh, fun fact, my aunt didn't look through the journals because she assumed they were homework. So if I kept it handwritten, she didn't go through it. If it was on the computer, she pretty much assumed it was porn. So hide your smut by writing it on paper. So And, and leave it in plain sight because that's where people don't look. Right. Like, write your weird stuff in class while your teachers are looking at you they think you're just doing homework and i was definitely not doing homework anyways um i just don't feel like every unfettered sad childhood thought needs to be some kind of horrifying power fantasy but that's the case i would have burned down many a taco bell by now (laughs) can we not burn down some taco bells don't tell me how to live according to this book every feeling I've ever had is valid and my my lack of ability to connect to people is a superpower I'm gonna go burn down a Taco Bell and demand a purge but you know if you meet those uh furry beast things that are much like a giant police blanket they may take away your anger (laughs) not if I kill them first the side eye not if I murder them first cool yeah, no, I, I've seen that side eye before. I've been the direct recipient of that side eye. But w- I, I would like to talk about ant beasts for a second because literally they are Cthulhuids. Yeah. Like the way they're described, the way like they're they're furry, fuzzy Cthulhuids, which makes me think Madeline Ellingle literally ha- read some pretty dark shit in the, her days at the library and wanted to just make it a little bit happier. So or she-, she was just on drugs. Can people just not be on drugs? Is it Lovecraft for people who take antidepressants? Probably. I mean, I mean, it's kind of nearly there. The planet is gray. Nothing exists, but we sing happy songs and our tentacles wave in the air like Zoidberg when we're happy. I don't like that at all. I just kept Why not Ant Beast? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I don't like it at all. Uh, there's a Pokemon uh, called Drampa, and it's a nine-foot dragon fluffy and in his Pokedex entry says that if a child Drampa likes is bullied, he'll burn down the house of the bully child. <laughs> I mean, considering that, that Gengar literally says, yeah, uh, it eats hum- uh, children's souls. Uh, you know, You're so- thinking of Drifloon, which is my child. Oh, right. Drifloon. Yeah. Drifloon is a literal balloon Pokemon that is trying to lure children, but is too light and gets lifted away by them because it's after their souls. I am a well-adjusted and high-functioning adult. Um, 
so all of this just makes me there's this show on hbo from like hbo asia called folklore and it's just short horror movies from asia and they're amazing and there was one last night about this uh dead girl that they find and they pull this nail out of her neck and she's systematically starts killing everyone who is mean to this guy by eating their hearts and i'm going okay yeah all right <laughs> drink it was great fantastic folklore um so okay we need to talk about the questionable feminism in this book because having a female as your main character does not a book make feminist That's having a vagina really lead accurate. the troop does not make the book feminist Especially when you undercut the feminism by taking the anger away and demanding characters smile more. Well, what's interesting, too, is we have the same thing that we have with, that's been incredibly popular over the past 10 years from, like, the Hunger Games and stuff like that, where you have the awkward girl who doesn't really know how powerful she is, but, like, the cute guy from her school thinks that she's amazing and, you know, you're really great. You have a lot of really great categories and I'm really nice and I'm not like any of these other people. And it's like, I kind of feel like this was that, that door opening moment where it was like, Hey, that's a good idea. I'm writing another book. I I mean, it it, it goes further back than that. I mean, that's literally, uh, you know, the breakfast club, (laughs) uh, that goes further back into like, you know, movies of the fifties, like the shy, awkward girl gets her, makeover and finally the popular guy sees her for what she is and they mad- fall madly in love hooray yay. I like the sisters. it was like super popular in the 90s too remember that she's all that my friend made me watch that like four or five times and then i remember years later i'm like huh remember how many times you made me watch she's all that she's like i don't know what movie you're talking about yeah it's a very very popular uh, trope in fiction um i hate it one and then two it also just really it doesn't value women the, because, the only yes. the only movie that i really like it in is heathers <laughs> tell me tell me that movie is not great oh well yeah it's great the movie is so twisted i remember somebody being like oh this is a comedy you'll really like it and i'm sitting no, there going like this the entire time going this is not a comedy what is yeah. this and i was trying to explain it to mark recently and he's just like wait how is that a comedy? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not. not. A comedy. It's not a comedy. Although um, you do end up laughing at a lot of stuff in it that happens. I laugh at a lot of things I'm not supposed to laugh at. Well, true. <laughs> I laugh at a lot of things that are considered to be uh, socially unacceptable. In aside, I was on Twitter and uh, a mutual had listed like their four comfort movies, and like one of them was Lord of the Rings, one of them was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I don't remember the other two, but it's like, if those are your comfort movies, I have some concerns. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that's a comfort, oh, friend. Right, it's like, I have some worries about, I mean, in all fairness, my comfort movies are probably just like four Tarantinos, but everyone is concerned about me, so that's fine. Yeah, but which four Tarantinos? That's important. Ah, fuck, uh, Kill Bill 1, Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, it's only three Tarantinos. <laughs> and then I think the fourth would probably be Kingsman. Okay, no. Acceptable on the last one. Thank you. So those are my four comfort movies. I am not a serial killer. Yeah, see, my my, my four Tarantinos are Jackie Brown, Django, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1, and um, probably Reservoir Dogs. Sure. I'd like to scream I am the only professional here on a regular basis at work and nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, so. Fair. Fair. I mean, that's that's 90% of, of the workday when we're actually in office is uh, me saying something that's a quote from a movie and then having to explain that it's a quote from a movie I haven't lost in mind. Accurate. Uh, so this book uh, attempts to do some science. I would love if tesseracting was a real thing that didn't like actually take a ton of physical and emotional energy out of you though. I mean, technically it's just a shape. You can just draw one. Well, I mean, so she tries to go into it a little bit and doesn't do a good job. Does exactly. But <laughs> the explanation about the ant moving across a line kind of makes sense in the overall concept of what a tesseract is. And if we go into it legitimately, like there's a lot of 
pseudoscience and math science and string theory and other things that at the time conceptually were actually being discussed. So I'll give her an ounce of credit for like at least being understanding of some of the science and trying to break it down to where a kid could understand it. Mm-hmm. Like, because again, the, that nice little image of here's a line, there's an ant over here trying to get over here. What we do is we just go, Boop. we fold it together. Yep. Because we're folding space and time, you know, string theory, but you know, they didn't say string theory because, you know, it exist yet. well, no, it did. It just, it was, yeah. Anyway. Wasn't super uh, easily accessible. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there is some cool science in here. Uh, not enough for me to salvage my opinions of this book, uh, but there is some cool science. Uh, Tesseracts are weird. They have existed in popular consciousness forever. I know about them because of the Salvador Dali painting. I also think the other scientific thing that kind of gets missed is the construction of it and what it does and how it operates um, with the whole idea of basically um, without modern computers and understanding it, uh, but you look at it with like a historical view, like looking towards the future, like the fear of technology, which again, not a theme, but kind of gets there Mm -hmm. um, is like, what if we just put all our brains in a jar and let a computer tell us what to do, you know, and how would it rob us of all emotions? And I don't think that that's necessarily exactly what she was going for intentionally, but it ends up working out because of the way it's described in nowadays where we literally live with a, you know, computer that is smarter than the computer that got us to the moon a year later. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it sort of reminded me of uh, the idea of the mechanical messiah that was built by john mary spear where basically it's like let's build this new mode of power because spiritualism is weird if you ever want to like go down a really really deep rabbit hole uh john mary spear and the mechanical messiah was a trip also one of the last good episodes of lore uh i would also recommend the god machine which you know for all you steampunk slash cyberpunk fans out there, same same theory and concept, but just a much deeper dive into it. Or just do some marijuana and watch Ancient Aliens. <laughs> or if you like, want to go back to the first seasons of uh, the remake with Doctor Who and do uh, Chris Eccleston and then some David Tennant, there's like a whole thing that I just realized basically comes from this book. Yeah, because Moffat's horrible. It wasn't Moffat. Oh, that wasn't Moffat. You're right. Oh, Moffat. Fuck you. Um, I will never forgive him for his Dracula. Jekyll, never forgive him. Jekyll was not great, but... Okay, you are not going to sit here and look me in the eye and say that Dracula was worse than Jekyll. No, Dracula was worse than Jekyll. Okay, you're right, it was. Um... I mean, I can't believe we both watched that first episode. I, I couldn't get any farther. I'm like, what? What is happening? Oh, were, anyway. that, was, that was rough. Um, side note, common thoughts is the Mayan death bat. Which no is, notes. He's perfect. Interesting, because in the uh, the Hellboy remake, common thoughts is the name of the... No. Um, Bat wrestler who actually turns out to be a vampire and fights Hellboy in the ring. Oh, within he's the first a bat 20 minutes. wrestler. How clever. Fuck you. Um, there is some great death cult stuff in uh, the Mayan religion. Uh, do some research on that because no one talks about the Maya enough except for their one doomsday prophecy that didn't come true. The whole room full of jaguars that tear you apart. Right. Exactly. There we the go. handball court of death, like yes. all amazing stuff. Um, God's the Azt- a- well, then the Aztecs stole and got all the credit for. And, um, and then Spanish ruined, so calm down. Read if you can Sylvia Moreno Garcia's uh, book "Gods of Jade and Shadow." It's a fictional book, but it's amazing, and she uses all sorts of mythology from South America, and it's wonderful. Chibaba. Uh, uh, so. That was just a note. I thought it was cool. Do your research on mine. Uh, do you want to talk about some author stuff? You know how I feel about that. All right. Some author stuff. 
So Madeline Lingle Camp was born November 29th, 1918 in New York. Her mother was a pianist. It's your birthday. Um, her mother was a pianist and her dad was a war correspondent. They had money though, because her family actually founded a bank, evidently. So it was the whole thing. Uh, Madeline was not a great student. Um, a lot of her teachers thought she was stupid and uh, shared that opinion with her. So she retreated into books and wrote her first story at five and then started a journal at eight. Um, her parents had very different idea on how she should be raised. So they ended up just sending her to boarding schools. Um, she was at boarding school and didn't make it home in time to say goodbye to her dad when he died in 1936. Um, she ended up graduating cum laude at Smith College and moved to New York. She met her husband, Hugh Franklin, when they were in the play The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov together. Uh, they married January 26, 1946. A few years later, they moved to Connecticut and opened a general store because neither of them had any income coming in. Um, they had a son named Dion and an adopted daughter named Maria, who's a seven-year-old girl who's the daughter of friends who had died. Um, they moved back to New York in 1959 so Hugh could go back into acting. But before they moved, and she ended up spending some time in Connecticut too, writing, um, they went on a 10-week camping trip across the U.S. And she started to evidently form ideas about a wrinkle in time at that time period. She came up with the um, three um, Mrs. Witch, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. What's It while on this trip. And according to her granddaughter, a lot of that came from when they were driving through the Painted Desert. And it was like, oh, this magical place. Oh, my brain goes there. And she okay. mentioned to her kids, I got to write this down. Um, so she ended up finishing writing her initial draft of the book in about three months, but kept re-editing until 1960. And this is where things get really weird. Um, the book almost didn't get published because it was so different from anything currently on the market that publishers did not know what to do with it. And they thought the text was way too difficult for kids. Um, she had actually been reading it to her kids nightly as she was writing pages. And they would go like, go back to the typewriter and finish it. Um, the book was rejected more than 30 times. And she withdrew from her agent from shopping it around because it was too painful to keep getting the rejections. But her mom's friend knew John Furrer and was like, hey, you send it out one more time to this publisher, just, just let him see it. And Furrer um, and his publishing company actually optioned it and published it in 1962. She was Episcopalian. We've already kind of talked about her concept of universal salvation, which basically she's like, everybody's going to be right with God. I don't understand why this is a problem. Um, Christian bookstores thought she was too secular. Uh, secular critics thought she was too religious. She was always kind of in this middle ground. She was in a serious car accident in 1991, but she recovered and was well enough to go to Antarctica the next year, which is super random and super badass. Um, her son died from complications from alcoholism when he was 47, which was a huge blow. Um, she developed severe osteo osteoporosis and had an intracerebral hemorrhage in 2002, so not doing great. She had to stop talk doing talks and had to stop teaching, which was really, really hard for her. Um, when they made the 2004 version, the John Kent Harrison directed version of A Wrinkle in Time, which we've kind of talked about, the uh, she actually said, I have glimpsed it, I expected it to be bad, and it is. So I love that shade, it just makes me happy. Um, obviously, she had a lot of medical problems. She died at 88 in Connecticut on September 6, 2007, in natural causes, which is still fairly recent in our time frames. Um, and then Ava DuVernay directed a new film version in two, or 2018, which was received a lot better than the one from 2004. Uh, Wheaton College has, in Illinois, has possession of all her papers and um, some materials written back going back to 1919. Um, but they started possession of them in 1976 and have kind of just kind of kept things going forward. Mm -hmm. She has a whole list of honors. So I'm going to go through them very, very briefly. Um, she won the Newbery Award for Wrinkle in Time. She was named Associate Dame of Justice in the Venerable Order of St. John. She had the USM Medallion from the University of Southern Mississippi, the Smith College Medal for Service to Community, the Sophia Award for Distinction in her field, the Regina Medal, the Allen Award for Outstanding Contributions to Adolescent Literature, the Curland Award. She was president of the Authors Guild for two years. She was a guest speaker for the Library of Congress. She had over a dozen honorary degrees from universities that she spoke at. She was a, a writer in residence for Victoria Magazine. The World's Fantasy Award gave her a Lifetime Achievement Award. 
the Margaret A. Edwards Award from the American Library Association, the National Humanities Medal. She was inducted to the New York Writers Hall of Fame. There is a crater on Mercury named after her, and there's a fellowship available in her name at Smith College. All right, there's probably more, but that was the list I was able to come up with. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yes, thank you, Wikipedia. Have I told you uh, my recent goal? No. I would like to be on the list of uh, famous people or notable people from my hometown on Wikipedia. I think I've earned that. I'm gonna be honest, I don't think I wanna be associated with Costa Mesa, California. There's a, there's a lot of racism there. It's I a, mean, with I the smack tab of Orange County, California, which is known as behind the iron, or the orange curtain. Oh dear. Okay. Well, we tried. Uh, so, crux of all of these episodes, did you have to read this in school? Me, yes, I found it horribly boring and convoluted as a child. Flash forward, I still find it boring and convoluted as an adult. Jason, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, yes, had to read it because uh, small town Texas, uh, basically, I think it was third grade or fourth grade, we had to read it. Don't mm -hmm. really remember which. Um, and then I would periodically reread it because I felt a lot like Meg Charles Wallace, like I said earlier. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot, but it also probably helped direct me towards science as opposed to lawyering because at the time I was like, I'm going to be a great lawyer. No, I'm going to be a great engineer. Nuclear engineer later. Yay. I had, or I didn't have to read it. But I did read it again, fourth grade in the car, going to camp. Um, and I do miss my ability to read in the car. So you survived an episode. Yay! Yay! Amanda froze for about two seconds, and I'm just like, what's happening? <laughs> oh, okay. I think all is well now. Uh, do you want to do resources before we go into what we're reading next? Yeah. Um, so. Um, obviously, Sparknotes is, is a friend to me because I can gather all of my thoughts in one place and go, okay, I remember the order of this happening now. Um, mm -hmm. I thought the Ava DuVernay film was good. I wrote amazing. That's not necessarily true, but that's what I wrote. Um, mm -hmm. Wikipedia, obviously, for some basis on Madeline Lingle, as well as a video from the Library of America where her daughter, or not her daughter, her granddaughter was talking about her grandma. Cool. Um, so... Next month is uh, Tori's birth month. Yay, it's my birthday month. So, Which means she gets to punish me with a book. So I've been thinking about doing this one for a long time, uh, Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, mostly because the book is so different from the musical or like the 40,000 adaptations, including one of the Phantom in the Mall, which Amanda introduced me to. And Phantom of the Mall is the greatest movie ever made. And I, I, it's on YouTube for free and I don't, like, I just want to put it up and torture my husband at this point. Like, he just, he logs out mentally when I put a movie on because I'm like, there's this really bad B movie that we're going to watch. And he's like, no, I'm going to go play video games. I'm like, okay. To the point where we make fun of Velocipaster all the time because there's a part in Velocipaster where he walks out. It's very clear this landscape is not China. It just has some bamboo shoots. And he just looks up and it brings up the words China across the screen. And he puts his hands on his hips and just goes, ah, China. So we'll be watching something and it's very clear that they're not where they're supposed to be or where they're saying they're going to be. And Mark will just go, ah, oh, China. And it's yeah, just... That sounds about right. That's it. That, that um, in addition, yes. I was going to say that reminds me of the Austin Powers movie. Ah, uh, England reminds me a lot of Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> Accurate. Um, in addition to Phantom of the Mall, you can also see the version with Charles Dance in which he punches a fake deer. I am so excited about all of this. Like, I'm more excited about the supplemental sources for this book than I am rereading the text. Phantom of the Mall. Phantom of the Mall. Uh, I just want to see Charles Dance punch a deer. Fake deer, not a real deer. It's, it's like a Cabela's deer. He just like punches it out and it falls over really artificially. Oh. I'm like trying to pull up Charles Dance punches deer. 
It's in like three Lindsay Ellis videos. Um, so we are all over the social internet as per usual because that is the place where at least I hide from the cold realities of human existence. Yeah, and with everything going on, obviously, I haven't seen Amanda face-to-face -face in nine months now. Yeah. Been on, on the yeah. computer. Yeah. It's been a while. So it's been interesting. It has been. Uh, Tori, where can our uh, listeners find us? So if you're lazy like me, you go to unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com and just link everything from there. Yep. But we're on Facebook at Unfortunately Required Reading. Twitter, unfortunately, RR, Instagram, mm -hmm. unfortunately required. Mm -hmm. And then our email address, if you want to send us anything, is unfortunately required reading at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to sponsor the show as Jason does monetarily, you may do so at anchor.fm slash unfortunately required reading. Your uh, monetary donation is not necessary, but is greatly appreciated. Um, we are grateful to all of our patrons and supporters as they continue to keep the metaphorical and physical lights on. Thank you, guys. Should we uh, have Jason say our, our favorite tagline? Oh, did you not want to plug capitalism this time, as you have been every other episode? Okay, I'm sorry. I've been drinking out of my unfortunately required reading mug this entire time. Uh, to my travel mug, so I can bring alcohol upstairs and not spill it everywhere. Um, that is at our Red Bubble store, which you can find at um, our unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com website under shop. Yep. Um, I will probably be working on a high-functioning anxiety letterman jacket, so we'll see how that works out. Uh, yeah, Jason, you're the guest. You get to sign off the way I usually do. Don't mess this up. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd rather leave it in your capable hands because I just want to keep the cheese plates populated. Sure. Also, I would like this moment to record in history as a white man defers to a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> I would like this moment kept for perpetuity. Is this going to be like the Uhura Shatner kiss or whatever? Like, yes, I just... Great moments man, in interracial history. Yes, white man defers expertise to black woman and it is received and listened to. <laughs> now, with that being said, and in the spirit of racial and sexual equality, go read a book. <laughs>